Hyperion to a Saturn. Welcome to the 17th episode of Hyperion to a Seder, the Fire and Water Podcast Network's Hamlet Podcast. I'm your host, Siskoid, your guide on a scene-by-scene deep-dive look at Shakespeare's masterwork through the lens of not only the text, but many film, television, comics, and music adaptations. Today we finish Act 2, Scene 2, with the Oh, What a Rogue and Peasant Slave Am I speech. The second of Hamlet's five great soliloquies, it may suffer severe cuts in adaptations, where the first player isn't allowed to perform, and yet even the plottiest of directors will feel the need to include this sequence for the play's The Thing, leading into the crucial play within a play. What is lost, of course, is the entire idea of Hamlet comparing his true emotions to the player's manufactured ones, a theme that goes back to Hamlet's very first scenes, Trappings of Woe. Shakespeare keeps asking if the representation of emotion is less than, the same as, or more than actual emotion. In a later scene, Hamlet will ask the players to underplay. This seems to be all part of Shakespeare's acting method, to feel rather than represent, to recreate emotion within the actor rather than simulate its outward signs for an audience. If we begin with the text itself, Hamlet says, Now I am alone. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul, so to his own conceit, that from her working all his visage wand, distraction in its aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function, suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba? Note the mirror within that line. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba? Shakespeare trains us to think in terms of mirrors. And this is a mirror of Act 1, Scene 2, and Hamlet's contention that the signs of grief are not themselves representative of his actual grief. In the player, he sees something admirable, the ability to express emotion worthy of its subject, even if it's an imaginary one. One of the driving forces behind the play is that Hamlet cannot find a way to truly express his love for his father, neither in shows of grief nor in avenging his murder. As in Act 1, Scene 2, he shows contempt for his own emotionality. What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Now, these lines herald the play within the play, delineating the very effects the mousetrap has on its diverse audience. Had Hamlet not already asked to insert lines in the murder of Gonzago, this might be the origin point of the idea. Hamlet, hearing himself speak these lines, would have come up with the plan a few lines later. Perhaps it could be played so that Hamlet's interest in the Italian play is just part of his morbid fascination with his father's murder, and the lines inserted are literary manipulation. Hamlet writes poetry, and this we know, and not intended to have a trap effect. Only after overhearing himself say these lines would that realization dawn on him. The speech also has the first real indication that Hamlet knows he's delaying his revenge, and that so does the play, if audience members are getting restless. It cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's offal. 
Hamlet's power is that he knows himself, can criticize himself, and can attempt to change based on that criticism. How does he respond to his own accusations? Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab a scullion. Words are the playwright's trade. So there is an almost metatextual beat here as Hamlet attacks his condition as a character in a play who lives by words rather than actions. Indeed, the plan he next hatches is all about using theatrical tools to push his agenda forward. Words will be his weapon, since that's all his author allows him. And the play that will catch the conscience of the king is almost meant as a test of the ghost's nature. Hamlet needs to prove his uncle's guilt to make sure the ghost isn't a devil sent to manipulate and damn him. The one thing we should keep in mind here is how Laertes will deal with the same issues. His devil is Claudius, who manipulates him into assassinating Hamlet. And Laertes doesn't ask questions or seek proof. He, in his own words, dares damnation. The irony of Hamlet's speech, of course, is that Hamlet resents and aspires to the first player's emotionalism, yet his next move is not to give in to emotion, but to intellectualism. The ploy is a reasoned one and seeks to gather more evidence, analyze facts, take nothing for granted. For the first part of the speech, one would imagine Hamlet racing out of the hall to skewer Claudius right away. And instead, Hamlet goes from high emotion to detective mode. So it's with that in mind that we'll look at how actors manage this about-face transition in each of our studied adaptations. In Branagh's, another soliloquy done in a single shot that follows Hamlet around the room begins with the prince out of breath, having just run into his study to hide. According to Branagh's own commentary, Hamlet is exhibiting relief because it's the first time he hasn't been watched in a long while. We're at the tail end of a long sequence in which Hamlet was accosted by Polonius, then by Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and then uh, by the players, all the while feigning different levels of madness and knowing the king's spies were in the room with him. No, I am in Branagh's delivery, I also hear another idea, that Hamlet admits or recognizes he has no real allies against the king. Horatio has all but disappeared from the play at this point, though in this version he is present during the player's arrival. RNG have quite obviously betrayed him, and the whole court is arrayed against him. Even when we include Horatio in that equation, Hamlet must recognize that if his father is to be avenged, he must carry it out himself, and no one can really help him except as unknowing tools like the players. The first player's performance has left him dazed. He can't believe the amount of emotion the player has been able to invoke. It's bearded him, shown him up. As Hamlet walks around the study, we see that uh, it holds more than books and engravings, but also theatrical paraphernalia, like musical instruments and masks. Hamlet is a Renaissance man and has a particular interest in theater. As he talks about drowning the stage with tears, he opens a toy theater model. Doing so on the word cleave might have been too on the nose. At swoons, he gets angry and starts breaking things, getting rather strident, calling for vengeance before growing calmer and starting to strategize. It's in these transitions that Branagh is weakest, perhaps because he gets too riled up to believably come back down in so short a time. 
He's far stronger in the quieter parts, sustaining a, a simmering rage through the end of the soliloquy that's far more effective than the previous tantrum. His open disdain at the words he must unpack his heart with, for example. What an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father, murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words! At the end of the scene, because finally scene two is about to end, we zoom in on Hamlet's face, following him downward and through the theater playset, where he drops a small paper king through a trap door. It ties into the idea of the mousetrap, a visual for catching the conscience of the king, and it's a nice oral sting to get us to the next scene. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. As the players leave in Olivier's version, Hamlet looks on and pauses at their theatrical paraphernalia that evokes the coming drama. Olivier then cuts the entire soliloquy, leaving only the last couplet. The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Not so strange an omission, since he does cut the player's emotional speech in the previous sequence. Hamlet looks excited at the prospect of what's to come, runs to the stage, and as the lights dramatically highlight him, shouts out the line with a flourish of both action and music. Too large a cut? It's true that Hamlet can't compare himself to the player, but Olivier could still have kept the lines in which Hamlet explains his plan. However, as he explains it again to Horatio later, and we see it for ourselves, there remains opportunity enough to make it clear to the audience. What we lose is Hamlet's thought process in coming up with it in the first place. That's played entirely internally instead, even if we can't say the idea of Hamlet looking for grounds more relative is retained. But in Olivier's restructuring, Hamlet is past in action, the scene now occurring after to be or not to be. So it makes sense not to dwell on that aspect. At this point, Olivier wants his Hamlet to move forward, to finally take action rather than doubt himself, and his energy definitely goes in that direction. It'll be interesting to compare it with Zeffirelli's 1990 and Tennant's 2009 performances, which also displace to be or not to be in this way. But first, the BBC adaptation. Jacoby plays the soliloquy as a soliloquy directly to camera, and this achieves at least two distinctive effects. The first is that it makes us confidants to the prince. The soliloquy, when it appears as inner thought, gives the impression of sudden realizations at odds with the fact Hamlet has already set his plan in motion with the players. Jacoby reconciles this by creating someone, us, to talk to, which is, of course, how the theatrical play would often be presented. He's just now telling us what he thought and felt while watching the first player's dramatic speech. Those realizations are being relayed after the fact and do not occur in real time. This goes a long way towards solving sequence issues in the play. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have, by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. Not to say the soliloquy is detached from the moment. Jacoby allows Hamlet's emotions to interfere with his confidential conversation. Sadness, grief, and discouragement border on despair, and he lets his anger take hold of him when shouting, who calls me villain, at the walls. The name-calling and cries of vengeance are enacted theatrically, with a wooden sword as if part of the play to come. 
Is Hamlet here imagining some scene in the murder of Gonzago we never get to see? as the play's action is aborted, much as this one's is delayed. This bit of business, which smooths over what can often turn into hysterics, brings Hamlet back on topic. Because he's imagining himself an actor, able to act the part written for him, without guilt or remorse, characters are guiltless, but Hamlet is instead his own author, not so guiltless. It reminds him of his plan, a plan he has already put in motion and is just now telling us about. With furtive eyes, Hamlet quite clearly thinks twice about letting us in on the secret. Here, a second effect is brought to bear. He makes us feel like guilty creatures sitting at a play. An examination of conscience, Shakespeare must have been aware he was asking of the audience. Murder is perhaps not in the common experience, but are there things in Hamlet that we have been guilty of? Do we blench during the play? Which of our sins do we project onto the characters, and which of their sins do we see ours reflected in? What makes us uncomfortable about the play? It's theater as moral lesson, though that lesson comes not from example, but from self-examination, which is in many ways the lesson of all mature Shakespearean characters. Speaking of self-examination, one of Hamlet's most interesting reactions to his own words is the realization that he may be abused by a devil. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil. And the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea. And perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me. Damn me. It is very much like he wants it to be so. Yes, that must be it. He wants the ghost to be proven wrong, so repellent is murder to him, even for justice. Hamlet goes a little mad on that last couplet, both crying and laughing as he says it. The play's the thing. When I'll catch the conscience of the king. There is a strange spin on the word king, something that brings the laughter to a halt. My take is that he seems to have accepted Claudius' place on the throne, calling him king instead of, say, uncle. Does his love for his father, as it relates to his thirst for revenge, have a kind of wick or snuff, the very thing Claudius means to have Laertes renounced later in the play? As we continue to compare the two sons in the play, one too impetuous and the other too reflective, we might recognize how Jacoby has integrated the whole of the play's themes into every part of his performance. Laertes' passion will not abate, so the opposite, Hamlet, could in time have forgiven or forgotten his father's unproven murder. Zeffirelli cuts some 30 lines from the speech, most from the opening, as the first player now makes no impression with his own impassioned speech, there's nothing for Hamlet to react to. Instead, he starts with, am I a coward? And looking at his two faux friends report to the king, he questions his ability to avenge his murdered father. Swoons, it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter. Or ere this, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful... Bloody body Gibson's visceral, highly emotional performance removes the need for a trigger. In the play as written, Hamlet is shamed by the player's performance. Here, the character's wild and intense emotions make shame bubble up without the need for it. 
Gibson's Hamlet often loses his temper and commits some small act of violence as words get caught in his throat. It happens again in this sequence, and, overwhelmed, he must leave the doorway lest he be heard. In a rage underscoring the litany of scripted insults, he vents his anger by beating his cloak on the ramp of the stairs he climbs, emerging at the top only slightly relieved of it. Tears in his eyes. It cannot be said that Gibson is the most subtle of actors. So there is relatively little variation in his performance through this section, but it works within the context of his acute emotionalism. Then we discover that Hamlet has not already ordered the murder of Gonzago. The whole idea of the mousetrap he has before our eyes, eliminating that particular ambiguity. Through a window, Hamlet hears, then sees, the players unpacking, and it slowly dawns on him this could be used to prove the king's culpability. As with Olivier's version, to be or not to be was moved to a point before this one. And so Hamlet's forward momentum will not brook delay now. This is closer to a normal movie structure, and it shouldn't be surprising, given that both Olivier and Zeffirelli set out to make a Hamlet accessible to mass movie audiences. Elements that might test the audience's patience are dutifully removed wherever they can be. 2000's Hamlet does his soliloquy as voiceover, obviously depressed and watching an old movie. It's a rebel without a cause. In his bed, listlessly. In his bed, listlessly. In this version, film has replaced theater as Hamlet's interest, and indeed as a medium for the play. We will later have a film within a film rather than a play within this film. No troop of players arrives at Elsinore, but players are continually arriving there, as they do in our own homes, through the television. The player that moves Hamlet in this case is James Dean on TV, rather than an old friend, although this isolated Hamlet may think of old film actors as his only friends. Though the performance we see isn't particularly filled with the emotion Hamlet speaks of, the choice is nonetheless a good one. Like Hamlet, Dean was a self-destructive youth dead before his time, possibly by suicide. Rebel Without a Cause has an ironic connotation as well, since Hamlet most definitely has a cause, but cannot bring himself to rebel. And so here we have a character who rebels without cause, motivating Hamlet to finally act because he does. Hamlet starts to film the film for inclusion in The Mousetrap. Hamlet's films are made in editing, and he need not call on a company of players. As the speech continues, we see him at the editing table, crafting an experimental film from odd bits and pieces. Images include eyeless women, his mother, wilting flowers, surely a reference to Ophelia, lips on cheeks, adultery, a classic Hamlet with skull, an image of his father, though also disturbing because it makes reference to the play as it exists in this world, where its actions and words are repeated, and accusatory eyes. We'll have more cause to discuss these images and others as the mousetrap actually unfolds. In the Fodor version, Hamlet's thought process vis-à-vis -vis this speech was almost all played out in his head during the previous sequence through hallucinations that matched each of the players with members of the court. The effect the players have on him is thus played rather than discussed. He doesn't have to unpack his heart with words. So the speech starts at, I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play. And because Horatio is present, those words are spoken to her. The soliloquy is turned into a one-sided conversation. Hamlet informs his friend of his plan, as he must, according to the text. Horatio is aware of the plan by the time the play rolls around. And there is no reaction from her, none is scripted, obviously. We simply fade to black. 
Though we can of course mourn the loss of Hamlet's quest to better understand himself, these many cuts are part and parcel why William Bellchambers is a weak Hamlet, we can still enjoy with interest the greater importance given to Horatio in this adaptation. She is present and even active through most of Act 2, even though Shakespeare never included him, or in this case her, in the text. And this element does work quite well. It makes the friendship more believable and deepens the Horatio character. She is steadfast in her friendship to Hamlet, backing him up silently and thus without judgment. Yet it weakens Hamlet and any cuts made to the scenes where she is present seem to speak to some kind of self-censorship on his part, though the impression is only in the mind of the well-informed viewer who knows the text. Another reason it works as smoothly as it does is because the film takes place in the modern era, an era largely devoid of class issues. This Horatio may move about Elsinore, attend Hamlet, and even face up to more highly placed courtiers, highly placed in the play's normal hierarchy, that is, without the social boundaries that would have prevented the historical Horatio from doing so. In the tenant version, to motivate Now I Am Alone, Hamlet rips out the room's surveillance camera, and yet ironically speaks that line to the subjective camera, to us, in other words. We can, of course, ask, who are we in this? In the text, we're simply the Elizabethan audience, and this is part of how we understand drama. It should need no more explanation than border panels in comics or spontaneous musical numbers on Broadway. Modern audiences may attempt to find metatextual motivations, especially when the play is performed in a modern setting. Not unlike Jacoby, Tennant will turn to us many times during the speech. But unlike Jacoby, his Hamlet does not exist in the medieval world of the play. And yet Polonius also spoke to camera, so it's difficult to call us, the audience, madness-induced visions or some unseen character. Elizabethan, we must be. Though, since asides and soliloquies are meant to express thoughts rather than speech, surely even an Elizabethan audience would consider itself, somehow, part of the character itself. The part one speaks to when one speaks to oneself. And perhaps this trope is what made Shakespeare focus far more on character study than on plot. Hamlet sits in a corner, reflective, but also filled with apprehension and fear. He's plainly disturbed by the player's performance or rather what it reveals about himself. He is the tardy son who needs to be chided. If someone can fake it, why can't he actually do it? When he finally stands up, he walks around drunk with confusion. There's an intriguing gesture on No, Not for a King, where Hamlet shows his bandaged hand, a symbol of his oath to avenge his father. You might remember Hamlet cutting his hand during an oath-taking in Act 1, Scene 4. He then walks right up to camera, full frame, and asks if we think he's a coward. In that instance, we may well be characters in the play, visions to be shouted at, but as an Elizabethan audience too, we must be Hamlet himself. He's the one who accuses himself of such things. After screaming for vengeance, he collapses. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain, oh, vengeance! Why, what an ass am I? From that prone position, he starts thinking aloud and seems to have the idea about the mousetrap right before our eyes and then runs off. How do we reconcile this with the fact he's already asked to add lines to the murder of Gonzago? As with Jacoby, we might be prone to think he is only now confiding in us a plan he had earlier. But that doesn't seem to be the performance here. Is it a realization insofar as it brings him out of his confusion and a sudden remembering of the plan? 
Possibly. Or did he ask for a play that connected to his current obsessions and even wanted to add lines that pay tribute to his father and or brought the play more in line with his obsessions and only now realizes that, oh yeah, it could flush out the murderer. Ambiguous, but as good a theory as any, and now Hamlet runs off to make further tweaks. This is the turning point in the play, and with to be or not to be displaced in this case to a point before this one, all delays are behind him. Again, the structural change is understandable and might prevent audiences from squirming in their seats as the action gets ever more delayed. But I believe that it was Shakespeare's intention. And many lines, like Polonius's criticism of the player's speech, point to this intent. The montage from Slings and Arrows, Season 1, Episode 6, cuts this speech down to a single line. It's first. In the context of the show, the actor playing Hamlet has been told the play is just five speeches to help get him through it. All you need is to get those right. You are disgusted with yourself. You are a coward. You are not a man. You are a weak and passionless failure. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Jack Crew's own insecurities are transposed into the performance. And with this awkward gesture and disdainful delivery, he tells us as much about the actor as he does about the character. Hamlet is a play about play acting. And Slings and Arrows certainly knows how to blur that line further. At once, we see Hamlet's auto-derision at being a bad actor, which is to say, unable to act in a non-thespian context, and Jack Crew's fear that he's not a proper actor either, coming from action films rather than classical theater. And it's done sparingly with a single line. Of course, as with all things, it's a single line that works because we, the audience, know both Hamlet's and Jack Crew's contexts. Michael Maloney's lively Hamlet in A Midwinter's Tale actually jumps into the aisles for his rendition of this speech, letting out all his venom right at the crowd and camera, or at least the angry section where he screams names at his uncle. A bloody bloody villain! Remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain! Oh, vengeance! Interaction with the audience is one element that naturally can't be part of a movie adaptation, but it's still an important part of staging the play theatrically. This is where films about staging Hamlet can inform us. This performance of Hamlet starts with a machine gun being fired over the heads of the audience, follows up with a Hamlet that first appears at the back of the room, and though Fage's set design is comedically described as people in space, Brana is true to that idea in his direction. The use of space includes the audience and makes for a visceral viewing experience. It helps that the play is staged inside an old church, rather than the standard theater. It removes the demarcation between play and audience, placing the latter in the set, in the atmosphere. The speech is mostly omitted from the original Classics Illustrated, as again, the first player never moved Hamlet to pronounce it. What we keep is an explanation of why Hamlet asked for the murder of Gonzago in the previous panel. Basically, from the line, I'll have the players play something like the murder of my father, to the rhyming couplet at the end. As usual, the comic is almost entirely focused on plot rather than character. There's also an educational note to explain the word blench. In the Berkeley version, Now I Am Alone is not spoken, but uh, it is shown in the topmost panel. Tom Mandrake's adaptation is much more concerned with mood, but still tries to retain as many of the famous lines as possible. Though the player didn't get to do the Priam monologue, Mandrake keeps most of the speech intact, cutting only specific references to the player's performance. 
So in this version, Hamlet chastises himself for not having acted yet as a prologue to detailing his plan to catch the king's conscience. It's a well-done sequence that resolves the question of when Hamlet thought of the mousetrap and does so pretty smoothly, while keeping the self-doubt of the first part of the speech. In many performances, the second part of the speech is a reaction to the first. Hamlet accuses himself of inaction, so decides to act. Here, the first part explains the second, with Hamlet telling us why he has only now chosen to act. Of course, a lot of this is thanks to the comics medium itself. Hamlet doesn't really go through a number of emotions and expressions because the number of panels is limited. In fact, there's a very interesting reuse of the same panel twice as speech bubbles flow back and forth between panels. It's a surprising use of page layout even more so because it works smoothly and doesn't create confusion in the reader. The page is read far faster than the speech could be delivered, and though it is technically comprised of three panels, the lack of borders turns it into a single moment. This all helps create a unity of idea behind Hamlet's words instead of the often played turn in the middle of the soliloquy. And, well, that ends our look at Act 2, Scene 2, Part 6. In a few weeks, an Act 2 wrap-up with a special guest. We'll look at the questions brought up by the Act and cover a Hamlet I don't normally cover on the show. To be determined. In the meantime, if you have thoughts on this particular episode, please head over to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Leave them there. And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thanks for listening. And I hope, dear listener, you will return for our Act 2 wrap-up. 